Hello, friends. I believe we are now live on the Soil for Climate Facebook group with Dr. Thomas Garot, a um, biogeochemist PhD from Harvard and the author of this phenomenal book called Geotherapy, Innovative Methods of Soil Fertility, Restoration, Carbon Sequestration, and Reversing CO2 Increases. Um, Dr. Garot, it's a pleasure to have you here. Yes. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be, to be with you. Right. And um, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your, your background and how you got interested in soil as a, as a you know, and soil restoration or basically in carbon drawdown in general. What got you interested in that and, and how that influenced your research and even writing the book Geotherapy? And, and again, you yeah. can just talk right to the people sure. there and I'll turn sure. the camera so it's more on you. Right, sure. Uh, it's perfect. Well, I'm, I'm a biogeochemist. I'm interested in all ways in which living organisms interact with their environment, vice versa. Um, and so I've been interested in that all my life. Uh, when I was a graduate student at Harvard, I was working on the biogeochemistry of nitrous oxide, laughing gas for my PhD, which is the natural chemical that controls the ozone layer. It is a major greenhouse gas. So <clears throat> what I found very quickly was that it was obvious that soils were a major source of nitrous oxide in the atmosphere. To understand how climate would change the ozone layer global warming, we had to understand where it was coming from, where it was going, and soils were clearly a major part. We began really working in the ocean, and I realized I needed to understand soils. What I found was that there were no courses, there were no professors of the field. In fact, Harvard has never had a soil scientist in their history. MIT, which I also have a degree from in planetary physics, has never had a soil scientist in their faculty. It's, it's an orphan field as far as top-level academic institutions are concerned. It's not regarded as an academic field, just like regenerative farming. It's not something people do with their hands. It's not regarded as a, an educational subject. So these are orphan fields. And the thing that's hard to understand about that is that soils are the ecosystem that maintains 99% of life on Earth by weight. Forests, trees, you know, vastly exceed the amount of biomass in the ocean. Soils are the most important ecosystem we have. I had to learn about them all on my own because there was no one to teach me at these universities. <laughs> Dr. Groh, let me interrupt you just for a second there. Um, I know I'm sitting next to you here, okay. but, but please, if you can, actually try and talk to the audience. You know, okay. imagine I'm sitting behind the camera and, you, and you're talking to those, those people. Right. There. Um, I know it's difficult, but yeah. you know, that's kind of how okay. it is in sure. Facebook. Um, so uh, I just heard you say two really important things that, that I want to just uh, reemphasize. One, you said it was an orphan field, that there really yeah. wasn't anything going on in mm -hmm. academia at the time. And the other, you said soils have something like 95% of life on Earth. Can you just sort of restate those things with a little more detail and, and speaking you know, yes. to the viewers out well, there? So you look at the biomass of life on Earth. The oceans make up 70% of the world, but in fact, they have to make 1% of the biomass. So you weigh all the fishes compared to the weight of forests on land. So really, soil is the ecosystem that maintains most of life on Earth. Uh, it's not studied in academic universities. There are programs, of course, in agriculture in many, many parts of the world. It turns out that the research agenda of agricultural universities and institutions is driven by the money. It's driven by basically chemical agriculture, the people who are promoting the use of, of uh, uh, soluble chemicals that wash out of the soil and accentuate mineral deficiencies and, and pesticides and all that. So their research is largely aimed at maximizing productivity and income by 
degenerating the land. I mean, what almost all farmers are doing is actually they're taking land that was fertile, they're simply running the carbon, the fertility down, dumping chemicals to make up the difference. And the fact is that this Ratan Lau, the world's most famous soil scientist, uh, has, says repeatedly, he's, Ratan Lau, back up, as someone I've known personally since the 1970s, he's the world's top soil scientist. I met him at the very beginning of his career, I was just a student. <clears throat> but he's pointed out, and other people have too, that every place in the world where we have taken forested ecosystems, and converted them to agriculture, to forestry, to pasture, to urban areas. What we've done is we've essentially wiped out almost all the biomass. So we used to have tall trees, now we have a few corn plants. 99% of the mass is gone. But the soil itself has lost half or more of the carbon. So we're simply running the system down. Now, the fact is soil contains anywhere from six to 12 times more carbon than the atmosphere. It's been controversial because originally people would only dig down a little bit, top 20 centimeters or so, because it's hard to dig. So they ignored all the carbon that was below. We now have better estimates based on people digging deeper. And also, people now are taking into account the topography of the Earth because the Earth's not flat. So there's really, of the order of you know, six or 12 times more carbon in soil worldwide, than there is in the atmosphere or in biomass. We've lost half the biomass in the world, we've lost half the carbon in the soil every place we've messed with. And um, if we don't regenerate those, we're gonna have a very hard time to find a place to put the dangerous 40% excess CO2 in the atmosphere to take that out and put it back someplace where it's useful, put it back in the ground where it came from. The key thing with putting it back into the ground is to manage so increases the productivity so more carbon is stored. That's really key. And so we, we, the point of this book here was that what we found was is there were people all over the world who were regenerating their ecosystems for their own private purposes. They had a bit of land that was ruined. They wanted to bring it back to life. And they did it as best they could without anyone to teach it. They figured on their own for their own ecosystem. The fact is what we found was what I found looking around was that people who've done this in every ecosystem in the world. In this, this book, it's 300 pages. We have chapters of people who've regenerated completely different kinds of soils, completely different climates, completely different plants in every continent except for Antarctica. So people have figured it out. What they've all done is essentially a version of, it's obvious really to anyone, is that maximize the recycling carbon, of nitrogen, of nutrients, of water, of energy within the system, so it's growing more. So that's why we need to regenerate the natural mechanism to stimulate productivity. That's what geotherapy is all about. It's the idea that the earth is sick, the earth needs to be healed, it needs to be done in a scientifically sound way, just like when a doctor prescribes a patient who's cut regulate their temperature. If someone's got the sweats and they're overheating, you've got to find, well, what's the cause of the imbalance? How have you treat the patient to restore his own ability to maintain his system properly. That's what geotherapy is all about. <clears throat> this initiative was originally developed by uh, Dick Grantham in France, and he contacted me in the late 80s after I'd been writing about the effects of amandone on deforestation on the chemistry of the atmosphere and how we need to bring the CO2 cycle back into balance by increasing biomass and carbon storage in soils. Um, <clears throat> so he invented the term geotherapy with the idea of doing just that, restoring ecosystem health, restoring ecosystem carbon storage. And uh, 
This concept was actually developed for the United Nations for conventional climate change. So we had the first meeting on geotherapy in Lyon, in France, in 1991. And the purpose was we had leading scientists, environmental scientists from all over the world, who all agreed the Earth was in serious trouble because we were damaging its ability to regulate the quality of our air, our water, our, our oceans, our soil, and our food. And if we didn't regenerate that ability to maintain those, we were in deep trouble. So this was an appeal from scientists to say, we need action now to regenerate what we've damaged. That's the only way out of this crisis that we've got, to grow our way out of the global CO2 crisis. Unfortunately, Dick Grantham, uh, we did this in 1991, had they announced the geotherapy declaration. We were going to present that to governments at the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change the first meeting in Rio de Janeiro in 1992 where they approved it, Dick Grantham was suddenly struck down about six months before the sort of Parkinson's disease and he just disappeared. We didn't know what happened to him. We thought he had died. And it turned out he was a prisoner in his own body. He couldn't read, he couldn't write, he couldn't talk. He was just you know, paralyzed completely. His mind was sharp. And uh, it took us about 10, 15 years to realize that he was actually still alive because he literally disappeared. And so when I started to regenerate the idea of geotherapy about 20 years later than that, what we found is that there was a new concept that had come out, which was geoengineering, which is not what we meant. Geoengineering to us is, is you know, technically complex physical solutions, not regenerating natural solutions. So we view this as a very different sort of beast than uh, geoengineering. But it is a parallel concept that's based on regenerating ecosystems rather than finding technical means to replace them. Right. <clears throat> um, and uh, I just want to um, uh, get in here for a second to tell users, please um, ask your questions via the chat window here um, and, um, and, and, we'll, and we'll start to answer them. Um, uh, doc, Dr. Garo just made, made some introductory comments. And also, we do have some sort of agenda items I know we want to get to, like biochar, for example, um, wetlands restoration, yeah. there's something called biorock. And um, I also want to talk about the discrepancy between the IPCC projections mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and what the historical record has been. But um, also, I just want to check something. Julie, are you watching the, uh, the questions there? If you could set it up so that you can see the comments here. Okay. Daniel Wall was the first. Let me say something more about books, yeah. if I can. Uh, um, it, absolutely. Yeah. But, but if you could monitor them and then just ask us yeah. a question okay. that's coming in, because I see people are already asking yes, them, which is, <clears throat> which is great. Okay, so why don't you continue, and then we'll get yeah. right to the questions. Yes. And also, folks, please share this in, in other groups. Yes. Okay, go on. Well, uh, the point of the geotherapy book is these are written by people who've done it themselves and completely different systems. But basically what it is in regenerating soil fertility is paying attention to the missing nutrients in the soil and finding natural, long-lasting, slow-release mechanisms that make them more productive. And the fact is almost every soil is deficient in some element or another. And natural elements like rock powders provide all the plants, elements plants need except for nitrogen. And soil is made from weathered rock, after all. <clears throat> and uh, we have to replace the deficiencies with compost, nitrogen. Uh, rock powders can provide everything except nitrogen. So if we add nitrogen and compost to that, we have a complete mix. And if we add biochar, and I don't want to get a long discussion about biochar here, but biochar 
It's like activated charcoal. It sucks up and holds on to nutrients and water, and by putting it into soil, it's carbon that lasts in the soil forever. You get it naturally from forest fires in small, very small amounts, but we can make it in any amount we want from any biomass. That retains the, all the nutrients that are released from the compost and the, the, the salt. It retains them so the nutrients can be transferred directly to plants through mycorrhizae and symbiotic fungi. So it's a whole complex mechanism. And moreover, that holds vast quantities of water. So that means that Instead of the water rushing off the soil, it's retained in the soil, it increases the growing season, recharges groundwater, and so forth. So, huge benefit. So, a, a lot of the methods in this book relate to aspects of biochar or rock powders, also innovative plants that prevent erosion, like vetiver grass, and so forth. So, uh, these are material methods, and you know, I don't claim credit for them. I wrote some of the papers there with rock powders and biochar, but it has brilliant innovators all over the world pursuing these. Now, the other aspect of geotherapy to look at is marine ecosystem restoration. And what you see on the cover of this book yeah, here, let me help you with that yes, yeah, I'm trying to hold it right there. I, I know, it's hard picture, to do it right. Yeah, not the title, yeah. but the picture okay. is a four-year-old reef that I grew in Bali, Indonesia. And there what we do is we regenerate all marine ecosystems, and this book has, has studies from all over the world on that. Uh, we do that very differently. In the ocean, the ocean has excess nutrients of everything life needs except for nitrogen and phosphorus. Those are the only things that are missing. And that's what we're dumping in the ocean with sewage and fertilizer in every coastal zone. So we've destroyed all our coastal ecosystems. They're in advanced collapse where we used to have rich coral reefs and uh, oyster reefs. Now we've just got slime and algae. Harmful algae blooms have taken over. So <clears throat> what we're trying to do with marine ecosystems is not to fertilize them. They're all being over-fertilized. We, we found instead is a, a very interesting mechanism we call bio-rock technology, which I'm a co-inventor of. And there we use a trickle charge of direct current in the ocean. That creates a very small electrical field that you can't feel, but it actually stimulates the ability of all forms of life to make the natural biochemical energy. So the result is they grow faster. And, and what we do, I mean, as you'll see in this picture, I mean, this area was barren. I mean, you see in the background, there was just a bit of sand and rubble. There were no corals and no fish there. And this is a four-year-old reef. We transplanted a few corals. We created habitat for vast numbers of fish. And we've restored entire ecosystems. Our, our corals and oysters are, and seagrass and everything we grow is, so has more energy it survives conditions would normally kill them for extreme stress. So the result is we keep whole ecosystems alive when they would die, like coral reefs would bleach and die. Uh, we keep them alive without this method. We're able to grow them back at record rates in place with no natural recovery. <clears throat> now what we've been doing is we've been growing reefs in front of severely eroded beaches. And when we grow a reef in front of a beach, the beach grows back in months at record rates. So we're taking areas that are, the land is vanishing due to sea level rise, increasing storm strength, we're growing them back. We're only doing it at a small scale. I'm just back last night from Barbados, where we're planning the first projects and where the government is very much into uh, new blue economy and blue carbon. So we're, we're trying to find ways to store carbon. But one of the advances of this method is it works in seagrass, salt marshes, and mangroves. And the fact is that, as I mentioned, soil has more carbon than the atmosphere by six or 12 times. Half of that is in wetlands, marshes, swamps, and bogs. Half of that, in turn, is in marine wetlands, mangroves, seagrass, and salt marshes. Those three ecosystems are less than 1% of the Earth's surface, 
but they hold more carbon than the atmosphere. They hold a quarter of all of soil carbon. And moreover, those ecosystems are bearing half of the organic carbon in the ocean. They've been ignored by terrestrial ecologists because they don't want to get their feet wet. They've been ignored by marine ecologists because they don't want their boats to run aground. So it's been an orphan ecosystem, but that's where we can get the biggest bang for the buck because they make soils that can be almost pure carbon. So we're, we're growing them back. We're growing, we're trying to grow back mangroves in Borneo this method. Okay, let me get in here for a second. So, um, so Tom, I just heard you speak very um, um, empath, um, uh, uh, strongly. Sorry, I'm uh, um, adv advocating for for marine ecosystem restoration, and uh, our group, Soil for Climate. Um, uh, unfortunately, has perhaps been overlooking that. I mean, our focus has really been on sort of pastures. Um, grasslands and, and even reforestation, but 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 I admit we we have not been giving enough attention to marine ecosystems. Um, can you please just sort of quickly make the connection between um, ecosystems and the marine ecosystems? You, you, you know, you know. I mean, you know the work we we do. You know, we advocate for the pasture system restoration. Mm -hmm. What what's the interface? What's the what's the complementary relationship between pasture system restoration and, and ecosystem restoration, and, well, uh, and, and marine ecosystem Well, you mean about land versus sea. Uh, well, the oceans, that say, 70% of the surface of the earth has only got about 1% of the biomass. So the ocean works very differently than land. I mean, in land, trees are big. They might last 100 years. They hold on to the carbon and soil. They can last for a long time. In the ocean, the plants are tiny. They're microscopic and they die and rot and go back to CO2 or get eaten or attacked by virus in days. So they don't hold on to much carbon. The only way we can get most of the ocean to be a carbon sink, now we're doing that very effectively because we're putting too much sewage and nutrients into the atmosphere. And with global warming, what's happening is less oxygen dissolves in warm water. The surface water now is so warm that Cold, deep water with nutrients and high oxygen can't get to the surface. So in almost all of the world, what we're seeing is we're seeing marine primary productivity collapse in the open ocean because it's no longer getting nutrients from below. In the coastal areas, they're collapsing because they're being over-fertilized. So, and those are the richest of all. Um, but it turns out that we need to really focus, in my view, is not the open ocean. The only way to turn the open ocean into a Real carbon sink is to turn the whole ocean into a dead zone. That's happened several times in the Earth's history. We'll have a million years or so of dead oceans and stinking hydrogen sulfide. You can't go near the coast, and that's not really something we want to do. We want to put it in the coastal ecosystems, mangroves, seagrass, salt marsh. They're bearing half the carbon in the ocean. We can get the biggest bang for the buck in terms of getting the most carbon to the least possible area at the lowest cost. So we really think that's, that's a huge thing we need to go to focus on those in between land and sea ecosystems right. that are so productive. And you're calling that the marine ecosystem? I'm, well, but it's, it's coastal ecosystem. Or, or coastal yeah. or wetlands. It, it is. I mean, wetlands it's, ecosystem. It's, it's, okay. it's huge nurseries for fisheries everywhere. Well, yeah. Let's talk about the, the John Todd work that yes. you now, show. Yeah, I would say that Obviously, the, the idea of regenerating the earth is not new. There are so many people who come to the same idea on the same many conclusions. Buckminster Fuller's you know, operating manual for Spaceship Earth is a great example. Definitely that concept was there, nurturing and managing our planet. So, um, in fact, anyone who thinks hard about it is going to come to that conclusion or thinks well. So it's not surprising many people realize that. And one of them, 
for instance, each of them has their own terms. So there's a dozen different expressions for this concept. Many of them are rather narrowly focused or, or complex expressions that people use. Regenerative development to reverse climate change, for instance, is one. But um, geotherapy means healing the earth. And this book by John Todd, which is brand new, is, in my view, the best possible introduction to the concepts of geotherapy. He never mentions the word geotherapy in this book. Although, although he wrote the introduction to this book and it prefaced along with Ratan Lau. So he's, he's aware of it and he's very much on our page. I, I've known John since the 1970s, early 70s. And he's a real hero because what he describes in this book is his own personal experience all around the world, regenerating severely damaged ecosystems that people thought were dead. And he did it by paying attention to recycling. And it just, just tells a lifetime of experience by sort of the master of ecosystem restoration. So it's a book I highly recommend. It's brand new. It's very simple, very simple and very elegant, a very complete introduction to concepts. Another one I recommend is this book, Burn, Using Fire to Cool the Earth by Albert Bates and Kathleen Draper. That, that's a book really about biochar. And it's all about incredibly clever things we can do to use bio logical materials to store carbon or generate economic value in ways that are very clever. So it's a book I recommend. And finally, this book here, which I have not read, it just arrived yesterday. This is by Elko Rowling, The Climate Question, uh, Natural Cycles, Human Impact, and Future Outlook. This is someone who's a biogeochemist and climate scientist who's paid a lot of attention to long-term changes in climate change natural cycles, uh, stuff that I had done about 20 years before and he was not aware. He came to exactly the same conclusions that I had independently with a much better database. But this is a guy who's really studied natural climate cycles as well as ones that we've altered and what the potential is for, for restoring them. And I haven't had a chance to read it. I have to review it, but there's a chapter here at the end on Mother Nature to the Rescue where, yeah, here, hold it to the, where he weighs the possibilities of weathering, reforestation, yeah, yeah. carbon burial, and using natural carbon sinks in order to restabilize climate. Because what Elko Rowling has shown, is, is, and what I I'd showed earlier, and I'll show it to you as an example in this book in a graph, is that he looked at the long-term sensitivity of climate change, global CO2, temperature, and sea level to each other. And um, uh, it's hard to see here. This is the one that I had done originally in the 80s in his, his version, where he plots global temperature against CO2 and sea level against CO2. But in brief, what he looks at is nearly a million years of climate data, long-term data of how the natural cycles work. And what that shows is very interesting, is that for the today's level of CO2, for today's level of carbon dioxide, if we look at these graphs, and unfortunately it's hard to see in the black and white version here, it's a lot of data, but for today's level of CO2 of 400 ppm, the equivalent temperature, the equilibrium temperature, sorry, once the system comes to balance with that, is about 17 degrees Celsius above today's level, and the equilibrium sea level is about 23 meters or 75 feet above today's sea level. So that, that's, that's where we're headed for today's CO2. It just takes, the problem is, is that people have been fooled by IPCC as to what, what is going to happen. It's very important to understand what the serious, fatal flaw in IPCC's projections are. Okay. Intergovernmental hold, hold on, hold on there one second. Yeah. Um, uh, friends, the graphs that 
uh, Dr. Garo just held to in, into the camera, are all in the Soil for Climate Facebook group in a photo album that I set up specifically for this interview. So if you go to the Soil for Climate Facebook group, you'll see a photo album with images for the interview, and, and those graphs that he just referred to are in it, as well as the IPCC graph that he's about to speak to. Hang on one second, Werner. People are asking for a list of the books that you have shown. Okay, oh, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll come to the question. Uh, yes, okay, so like people that. have asked for a list. Yeah. And absolutely, immediately after this, we'll post it in the comment field. Uh, th thank you for asking. So the question now, and then immediately after this, we will, we'll, we will take to the questions in the comment area, has to do with the discrepancy between what the IPC says is the equilibrium temperature for 400 parts per million and what the historical record in the ice core samples show and, and why that's important that we understand that. Well, the ice core samples show how climate really behaves over the long term. Uh, they, you know, uh, one CO2 temperature and sea level affect each other, and they all affect each other in reciprocal ways. Um, so that's the real behavior of the system. IPCC was not predicting the, the equilibrium changes. IPCC was asked by the United Nations for a Convention on Climate Change to come up with projections of what would happen based on models in 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 years at the greatest To, to 2100, basically. Yes, so, so there, these are what we call short-term projections based on what would happen. Now, the problem is the following, is that 93% of the heat in the Earth's system is in the deep oceans, held by the ocean. It's soil, the biomass, uh, atmosphere, um, the ice caps, they hold very little heat. The ocean is what holds the heat. Now, the fact is, is that the whole ocean, except for the surface layer that's warmed by the sun, is basically at refrigerator temperatures. It's been chilled by the ice caps, Antarctica and Greenland, down to temp refrigerator temperatures, four degrees Celsius, just above zero. Now, so we've got this ice-cold ocean sitting beneath the warm surface layer. Now, as the heat now is being mixed in, it's warming up the deep ocean. Until the deep ocean warms up, we will not feel the full effect of warming at the surface. If there was no heat flowing into the sea, the temperature increase would have been, saying 30 degrees C already. And that's what this cold ocean slowed down warming. The fact is that it's a very simple physical fact that it takes 1,500 years for the ocean to mix. It's being mixed by winds and waves and turning over. So until we go through one or two mixing cycles, we won't get rid of the heat that's coming in from the greenhouse effect. So that's a couple thousand years delay. So after we increase CO2, temperature responds a couple thousand years later. That's the simple fact that the system's got a built-in time lag. That's not in the IPCC models. They're ignoring more than 90% of the impact. So what they're doing is they're looking, I don't know, this is getting it backwards, so to speak. Um, it's what they're looking at is essentially the very beginnings of an increase that's going to it's go the beginning of an S curve. Yes, the very beginnings of an increase, and the fact is that they're looking at that, those, and they're somehow in the public mind they think the IPCC projections are the equilibrium sensitivity as to where climate is going to go. No, it's not. It's a beginning, and it's going to be worse and worse and worse. It's going to keep going on like that for thousands of years. So the fact is. Give an example. I show in this book here a photograph of a cave from my home island, which is Jamaica and the Caribbean. And um, let me find that picture here. Now, it's black and white, it doesn't show up very well, but this is the sea level in this picture here 
130,000 years ago, which is the last time global climate was one degree to two degrees warmer than it is today. And this is what we're headed for. Now, the fact is, at that time, sea level was eight meters higher than today, or about 25 feet higher than today. And that's where that sea level is above today's sea level. At that time, there were hippopotamuses and crocodiles in London, England, where it was one to two degrees warmer. And the fact is that CO2 at that time was 40% less than it is right now today. So it's not, it's an underestimate of where we are headed. And for 400 ppm, we're talking about sea levels and temperatures that are way, way up. They're going to hit us, won't happen maybe in our lifetime, but it's inevitable if we don't reduce CO2 very quickly. And that, that's why in that, back in 1987, when I wrote the first paper, I've been working on the Amazon, the impacts of deforestation, the chemistry of the atmosphere. I realized that if we could greatly increase productivity of biomass and soil, particularly in the tropics, we could pull that CO2 down, grow our way out of the climate crisis. And that was impossible to do with supply-side solutions alone. Even if we stopped burning all fossil fuels this second, right now, we'd still have runaway global warming for thousands of years because of the excesses in the atmosphere. So, De emissions reductions alone cannot do it. They're essential, no argument there. They're absolutely essential, but without increasing the natural sinks and pulling CO2 back out of the atmosphere, there's no way to stabilize it and prevent runaway climate change. Right, right now, we're in a runaway climate change mode. Right now, almost the whole surface of Greenland is melting. It's just melting, it's incredibly hot. That's going to add another millimeter to global sea level rise right now, in this season, this summer. And when all of Greenland goes, that's eight meters or 25 feet of sea level rise. When Antarctica goes, it's 10 times that. You're talking about 80 meters of sea level rise, so a couple hundred feet. And the fact is, where we're headed now is a situation where billions of people are going to lose their homes. Everyone in coastal areas is going to have to migrate inland. All right, well, listen, I, I, I don't want to belabor this. Uh, it's much more serious than we realize. The key issue is the solution is at hand, putting carbon back in the soil by regenerating soils. That's the only real solution we have. And I see marine coastal ecosystems being a very important part of that, but part of that same strategy. Right, and when you say marine coastal ecosystem, that you're, that's part of soil. It's a different type of soil, but it's still soil. That's you, right. Well, that's yeah, right. Okay. We're talking about plant-based ecosystems, okay. not coral reefs. We're okay. talking about plant-based ecosystems. I get it. Very good. Okay, yeah. let's, let's go to the questions now. Um, uh, Werner, are there any uh, particular that you want to bring our attention to? Uh, there was a question about oh, what is your take on the water vapor explanation of warming described by Walter Jenny? Okay, maybe we should. So it's the Walter Yenny. I don't know if question. we can begin at the beginning, though, because but, there were some people who had priority. Uh, must okay, we'll, we'll get to it. But right now, the Walter Yenny question has been offered yes. to you. So go ahead. And talk <clears> yes, okay. Um, well, sorry, I, I don't see the question here in front of I, me. I can it, read it. it okay, it, yes. It says the water vapor governs majority of greenhouse effect and that damaged soils, damaged ecosystems that are not holding, uh, regulating water properly are mm -hmm. contributing to warming even more than CO2. Same solution is there is any case to rebuild soil carbon via CO2 sequestration, but curious your take on that possibility of lowering temperature much sooner due to impact on water cycle rather than reducing CO2 level alone. Well, yes, the two interact so closely you really can't separate them. But I mean- but Also, yeah. tell me, can you say who, who asked that question? The question from 
Julian Julius. Okay. Julian Julius. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So it's a, the Walter yeah. Yeni work. Yes. Well, the, the thing is this: is that basically the bulk of greenhouse warming is caused by water vapor, but it's not because humans are putting more water vapor into the atmosphere. We're not spraying it in hoses all over the place. What we're doing is increasing CO2. That CO2 then traps heat. That causes warming of the surface ocean, which causes evaporation. So that's a positive feedback. So for every molecule of CO2 we put back in, we get multiple, multiple water vapor feedbacks that increase a three quarters or so of the total warming. So they're very crucial, but it, basically atmospheric chemists regard the increase of CO2 as driving the increase in evaporation. But, but, now, but, but what about the, the sort of the therapy approach that, that Walter yes, no, and, and others right, are trying I'm, to do I'm, I'm, but by re-greening right. and creating more? Sure. No, that, that's part of what I'm saying. Now, the, the point is that, that's physical evaporation. The thing is what happens on land is very different. What happens on land is almost all the water that's going to the atmosphere is not going by evaporation, it's going by transpiration. It's going by the plants, sucking the water molecules up through the roots, up the stem, and up the leaves. Louder. Louder? Yes. yes okay. So, so what, what they're doing, plants are, are a very efficient mechanism. What they're trying to do is they're trying to capture CO2 from the atmosphere for photosynthesis. Every time they open little holes in their leaves to suck some CO2 out, far more water vapor goes out the other way. So they're pumping water into the atmosphere at a very high rate. Every molecule of water that's sucked up from the soil is absorbing heat, and, and that heat basically is being transferred from the soil into the atmosphere. So every molecule it, it takes energy to evaporate. So when, when that moisture in the atmosphere then condenses as rain, then it releases heat, and that drives atmospheric motion. So plants are in fact about responsible about 90% of the water transport to the atmosphere on land surfaces. So if you increase plant biomass, you're going to increase transpiration, you're going to increase rainfall, and you're going to increase the heat flow directly from soil to the atmosphere. And that, that really cools the surface of the earth. It makes it very pleasant. So every place we've cut down the forest has gotten hotter than hell. Every place we glow the forest back, soil surface cools down. So, so the, the basic point, is, is that by increasing evapotranspiration, you can cool the climate that way in a complementary way to pulling the CO2 out of the air. In other words, there's a separate force well, through well, evapotranspiration. But it's, it's linked. I mean, the, the fact is that it's linked to, to CO2 production. So the, to the two are sort of the same process. But I mean, the, the point is it's such a large thing that wherever we read green air as we cool them, that's a local cooling rather than global cooling. We can't do it over the ocean. That's 70% of the earth. So in fact, I mean, there's a limit to how much we can do with global cooling with it, but definitely we can get strong local cooling. But, 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 but the hope is, or at least my understanding, is that enough local cooling adds up to, you know, being substantive, like the, the whole Horn of Africa, for example, okay. you know, yep. which is affecting well, you know, I'll, I'll, Europe. I'll give you an example. I mean, at one point, someone said, this is 20 years ago, someone sent me data temperatures in, in Honduras. They said, you know, temperatures got up 20 degrees C air temperatures in Honduras. I had no idea global warming was that quick, that fast. I said, that's not global warming at all. That, what's happened is that in the last 20 years, it cut down pretty much all the jungle in Honduras. And so now all that heat that used to be growing up as evapotranspiration is staying in the land. The land's baked and brown and barren and hot, and that's why it's so hot. In fact, every place in the world where they cut down the forest, the first people, they said the same thing. This so pleasant, it's cool. The springs were, the rivers were flowing year round. And when we 
cut down the force, it got so hot, the springs and rivers all dried up. And where you go and plant those things back, the springs and rivers come back and the surface cools down. I, I've seen it myself in the Amazon. It works. Okay. Okay. Let's take some more yeah. questions. Yeah. Werner, what do you There's have for us? There's a question from George Mokre, who is on. George, yep. He says, Tom, when I spoke to David Keith about soil carbon sequestration, he scoffed at it by saying soil loses carbon at higher air temperatures, such as we will see with the effects of climate change. How would you respond to him? Okay, Joe, let's just repeat the question. So it has to do with responding yeah. to, uh, uh, well, the question is from George Mokre, and it has to do with responding to David Keith, who I guess was a little bit dismissive. Well, I yes, I mean, it's definitely true that there's a positive feedback, and the harder we get, the more, the more soil carbon is broken down. The point is, we've got to prevent that happening. That's a positive feedback, just, just like many others are. So, um, yes, that's why you've got to prevent it getting to that point that we can no longer store carbon in soil because all the CO2 is baking out of it. So, so you're not dis disagreeing with, with David Keith. You're saying we need well, to prevent that scenario. Uh, yes, we need to prevent that scenario. I mean, the David Keith point of view is saying, well, that, that's happening and there's nothing we can do about it. So, we, you know. Okay, but you believe there is something we can do about it. Yes. Okay, let's, <laughs> let's take some more questions. That, and let's just try to take as many questions as possible right yes. now because people okay. are, People have waited patiently. Maybe we should begin at the top. Let's, of the let's go. Oh, you can see it. Um, this is. Um, oh, should I just read the questions? No, the no, I don't want to do that. Um, There's something Stephen Gordon, Dr. Lal, really doesn't discuss the role of soil biology in his research. Dr. Christine Jones is the soil scientist that talks about this the most. Most biomass is microbial. Humans even are mainly microbial ecosystems. No, well, I mean, all that's true. I mean, Lal is certainly very aware of it. I, I think that that's, you know, it, but he's, he's trained in classical soil science rather than microbiology, and we have to bring all these fields together. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think there's a real dichotomy there. I think all these serious soil scientists are, are really working towards the same goal. Um, Here's something from Matt Kroger before we can begin to fix what is broken, we need to stop breaking it, don't we? Yes, well, I, no, no, this, no we one's arguing. Fossil fuel no, one's, no one is saying that we should continue burning fossil fuels just because we can also plant trees. We've got to reduce emissions at the same time as we increase sinks. And the sooner we do both, the sooner the chance of stabilizing and preventing runaway climate change at a cost we can afford. The thing is that, you know, everyone asks, when, where is the tipping point, for instance? There isn't one tipping point. Every ecosystem is a tipping point. We passed the temperature tipping point for coral reefs in the 1980s. And we knew that at the time. We said it all over the place, that they can't take any higher temperature. And even though that was shown 30 years ago, we still have governments saying, oh, one and a half degrees further warming is acceptable. That means they've decided to sacrifice coral reefs and all, all coastal communities on all lying coastlines. So, um, we need to do something very quickly. The sooner we do it, the less the damage will be and the lower the cost. So um, no one is saying that because we can plant trees, we should reduce uh, consumption. That's, that's sort of a red herring argument. So here's someone from Karen Worthington. She says, MIT and Harvard do not have soil science, question mark. You mean all of my biotic, geography, soil science, and <laughs> climatology I took in undergrads 
Yes, I think, that, even there. I think that's true. I mean, as I say, oddly enough, MIT, when it was founded, was founded by a geologist who's a guy who founded the U.S. Geological Survey, and it was meant to be for training in what's called the practical arts, engineering, and all that. And part of that was MIT was formed was actually a land-grant college, and they Part of their charter says that the students should learn the practical arts, including the art of manuring. Okay? That was a practical uh, art, yeah. MIT never developed programs on how to manure the land and restore fertility properly, but it's part of the original charter. <laughs> okay, that question was from Karen Worthington. Now, I have a question here that was sent to me via text. Um, it has to do with zeolite. Are you, are you familiar with that? Yes, uh-huh. Uh, can you just speak to that? Well, so what's the question? It's it's a little convoluted. Just whatever you think there's a, is what well, is. Well, zeolites are a natural mineral that have very high cation exchange capacity, so they're useful in a lot of soil and industrial. Um, you know, um, would, would it be something that was a, an input that was artificially added, or, or or can you increase it through grazing, perhaps? Because I think there well, might zeolites, be well, zeolites are a mineral. I mean, a, a crystal that forms inside the earth that has properties that hold all this stuff very well. So I say it's used for an exchange, you know, absorb things and so forth. It, it, but it's it, used in soils quite a bit. But it, would it be an additive? I mean, would that be would that be? Oh yes, yeah. Well, I mean, it could be. Yes, I mean, many rock powders are. Zeolites have got a lot of high surface activity, so it will hold certain elements and retain them, and others it won't hold. You know, it, okay. it, it, it depends. Zeolite, the zeolite structure has large holes inside that different things can fit in. Some things are too big, so they can't get in. Some things are too small, so they fall out. You know, so but and they can be tailored for specific elements. But that that's a bit of work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now here's uh, an interesting question. Uh, other questions, yeah. From Stephen Rich. From Stephen Rich. Yeah. I was in D.C. a couple of weeks ago talking with congressional staff about regenerative agriculture. What legislation and executive action do you recommend? We said that in view of climate and food security crisis that are coming, our government must do much more. We suggest legislation authorizing maximum carbon sequestration using all proven methods. Okay, so this is the question on policy Stephen from Rich. Stephen Rich. Well, um, yes, I, I think the problem in this country is that they tried to say it in terms of food security, not in terms of climate change, because uh, the U.S. government doesn't admit climate change exists, um, so that they're having, in a sense, to mm -hmm. to you know hide what they're pursuing. Uh, there are more and more efforts to do this now. I mean, back when the UN Convention on Climate Change was signed, I I had in it that soil carbon monitoring would be required. That was removed by governments. So there's right now governments have refused to monitor soil carbon, and the reason is that the oil-producing countries, namely the United States, Russia, and the oil-producing countries, basically the Arab OPEC countries, are determined to make as much money as they can off selling fossil fuels. They have blocked any effort for, for sound and comprehensive carbon accounting, including soils, because they're afraid that they might be taxed for the amount of carbon, have to pay to put it in. So they've blocked any initiative to have soil carbon accounting included in the framework convention on climate change. Until we do that, we're not going to see any progress. The French have made a step towards that, but it was purely voluntary. And they, they made it voluntary because there was political opposition from the United States, the Russians, and, and the Arab oil producing countries. Are you, are you talking about the four per thousand program? Yes, the four per thousand. The four per thousand proposal of the French was that countries would increase their their soil carbon by 0.4% a year voluntarily. Now, um, 
thing is that that's not enough. I mean, the, the idea there was if everyone increased their soil carbon by that amount, you'd reduce the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere. But that's not what we need to do. We need to do much more. We need to reduce the dangerous 40% excess that's already there. So it's a step in the right direction. It's a very important step in the right direction, but it, it's inadequate to meet our needs by itself. Yeah, so and, much more ambitious. Uh, Stephen, if you're interested in policy, I don't know if you if you are already uh, in the Healthy Soil Legislation Google group, but please join. It's just Healthy Soils Legislation, you know, healthy-soils-legislation. There's a Google group, and um, uh, please join that if you're not already on it. Um, what other questions do we have? There's a question by Grace Gershony. The question is, are you aware of Dan Daniel, a young theory about the second law of thermodynamics and climate chaos? In essence, he identifies disorder or entropy as the causative factor in the form of heat, but also due to increasing simplification, monoculture of the environment. Oh, uh, here it is. So not just biomass, but diverse biomass <coughs> is needed. So this is from Grace Gershini. Yeah. Well, this is a very fascinating question. I don't know anything about this. Um, so, um, however, I <laughs> he spoke at. Uh, Retreat a year ago. Yes, no, I, so I don't know about that, but oddly enough, I had a long discussion about a thermodynamic model of climate change and economics this morning. Um, and um, that is to say that, well, it's a very complex question. I mean, the thing is that there is a natural carbon economy because carbon exchange is involved in every biological process and climate change process, energy process, some form of carbon is involved. Therefore, this transfer of carbon from one form to another should have volume. It has real services, but we don't volume in an economic term. We don't know how to say how much carbon in biochar versus a tree versus in the atmosphere is worth. We move them from one place to another. So there's no economic accounting of that. And what I was trying to do in the Federal Convention of Climate Change at the original draft was to have complete carbon accounting, and governments refuse to do that. Now, what Delton Chen, who is an Australian researcher, is doing is he's proposing a sort of a, a parallel currency that basically is linked to carbon. He doesn't quite put it that way, but basically it would pay for services for carbon removal. Now, one aspect is a tax that you could do, but the point is a tax, you know, it's in a sense punitive, a tax it won't be effective unless it's earmarked specifically to solve the problem. Uh, I proposed a carbon tax back in the 1980s, or I proposed that anyone who puts CO2 into the atmosphere pays a person who removes it and puts it back into the ground, the real costs, and that would pay for the removal and pay for the real costs and so forth. But I think that was ignored at the time, and when the idea of a carbon tax is regenerated you know, some decades later by politicians and economists, they had a completely different idea. They asked, how much do we have to tax carbon so people can't afford to emit it? And the fact is, it has to be brutally expensive and reduce your standard of living. It has to be a huge tax. So someone does, it could be $100 a gallon for petrol and uh, gasoline in LA, and people still going to have to buy it. They'll bitch and moan because of what you know, does to their, their cost of living, but they would have to do it. So it's very inelastic. Doubling the price doesn't reduce consumption by half. In an economic term, it's not elastic good. So it needs to be brutal in order to have an effect. And then that's worse. And it didn't solve the problem because then they were planning to give that money away to rich corporations or taxpayers or politicians. It was just a giveaway program. 
without solving the problem. That, that's really criminal. I mean, a tax should be earmarked to solve a problem. It should be very specific. If it is, that could be very cheap. Now, Delton Chen has done, he's realized that what we need besides a tax so that people pay for bads as opposed to goods, um, you, know, you know, that expression, we should tax bads and not goods. Um, the question is, how do you reward goods? So someone is planting trees and verifiably storing carbon. What, how can you get a reward? So Delton Chen is proposing a parallel currency for carbon sequestration. And his idea is basically we use a thermodynamic model that putting CO2 into the atmosphere is increasing entropy. We use the basically entropy of the system in a thermodynamic sense as a measure of CO2 pollution. A very interesting concept. Very, he has an idea of how to monetize that. I don't understand money very well, but I understand carbon. But um, at any rate, there's some very interesting initiatives there as to how we could have a financial system that pays for solving the problem at the scale that we need. And uh, let me just put in something there. Um, uh, if you're in the Sulfur Climate Group, you, you know, we've um, um, discussed the idea of carbon markets and carbon credits and blockchain technology and the company called Nori is working on um, some sort of, you know, carbon currency. So this whole, er this whole concept of a carbon currency it is indeed uh, evolving. Obviously, it's in its infancy now. We don't know exactly where it's going to go, but 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 certainly uh, currency is going to be impacted by this. Um, Werner, can you uh, well, you know let's a take a couple more questions? Question, but, um, uh, instead of reading the whole thing, is it possible you can just um, just uh, you know just decipher the? Um, okay. Well, somebody's making a reference to the work of Professor Milan Milan. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know. Showing how our land use directly affects the water cycle in atmosphere thermodynamics in addition to the carbon-induced warming and the ocean evaporation feedback explanation you said. It seems that attributing the whole water aspect to a feedback driven by carbon misses this important dynamic where historic deforestation, wetland drilling, desertification, urban heat islands cause a lack of the evaporation needed for water vapor to compensate and it goes on okay that's good uh, uh, who, who was that this is from timothy sexor okay so from from timothy timothy uh, i don't see the full question but professor but I, milan yeah i mean i actually i i think to put it in maybe simpler terms i mean what, what milan milan is describing is essentially Mediterranean ecosystem. He comes from Spain. And, and um, what's happened there is that the forest disappeared thousands of years ago. There's hardly any memory of it and made the land barren and dry. It stopped the evapotranspiration, stopped the rain that fell on the mountain, the rivers dried up. And so in, in a sense, I mean, he's talking about the thermodynamics of systems that have lost their water cycle. And I think he's saying that, you know, if you can regenerate that, you, you can have a luscious system, uh, but there are limits to that. I met him at a conference talking about greening the Sinai, for instance. I don't think that can be done, but where's the water going to come from? So you can plant trees, but they're not going to grow if you don't generate water. If you've had enough water, then it could be a self-sustaining cycle, but there's a certain level that you've got to get before that's possible. And some places in the world degenerated them so severely that uh, it's going to be a huge task to regenerate them. Everyone can be, be regenerated, but when it's so far gone, there's almost nothing left. Costs can be prohibitive. 
What else do you have for us? Something more from George Mokri. Uh Well, hang on before we give him a second one. Yes. There's a question here from uh, Thorsten Arnold. So friends, I'm looking at, at it now and I see you, you, you sort of write long paragraphs. Yeah. It's kind of hard for us. We kind of we were hoping for just like a little short question we could read. But, but anyway, uh, Thurston Arnold is talking about uh, that a lot of farmers, a lot of the people who are actually going to be on the ground and making a difference are themselves not really believers in quote unquote global warming, but they can see changes on the ground. So they might, they might fully believe and concur that there's change happening on the ground. You know, you can see it here, deforestation, soil degradation, but not necessarily concur or want to say that it's global warming. And then the question, yeah. is, the question is, is this polarized political climate, in this polarized political climate, how can we raise awareness for land-based climate change and resilience impacts without being branded as, quote, global climate change deniers, unquote. Are there good quantitative studies available? I don't understand that at that point because I mean, awareness of land use-based climate change resilient impacts, you know, it's, that's it, it, not it, climate change denying In other words, is, is there something you can show to the conservative, you know, ranchers and farmers about improving their soil and their productivity without necessarily having to link it to climate change. Well, well, I mean, let me say this. You know, most people don't know the history of their own land. They don't understand how it was. They don't understand how severely degraded it is. They only know the degraded status. So uh, I mean, without being educated, really knowing that, it's easy for them only to see the narrow, short picture. And I think, unfortunately, our educational system doesn't teach us about the ecosystems we live in and how to nurture them. That, that should be something in elementary school. It should be intuitive knowledge of everybody. But the fact that you can't learn it in school because they don't teach it to you, you have to learn it on your own, and only very few people have. Um, so in, ter in terms of the, the worst quantitative studies, actually I'm, I'm going tomorrow to the, the Hudson Carbon Farming Project where we're looking at major efforts to increase soil carbon storage. And this, this is a, a, a project with a couple I think 250 acres or so that's being managed regeneratively and they're quantifying both the economic inputs and outputs, the, the carbon inputs and outputs, they're, they're doing organic farming, they're starting now biochar and rock powder and compost mixtures where we're going to be running each of those separately and in all possible combinations, quantifying greenhouse gas emissions, quantifying yields and all that. There are a few gaps in the cycle in our meeting tomorrow is to identify them. One of the things that I want to do is also measure the carbon sink from the weathering of rock powder. That, that actually consumes CO2 from the atmosphere as well. And we, so we need to get a handle on all that. Our, our idea there is once we have a pretty complete picture of the carbon cycle, also the nitrogen cycle, we'll have some idea whether you can say realistically, is organic farming better for the land in terms of the amount of carbon, the fertility of the soil for future production? Is it better for the farmer in terms of the amount of material they produce and the, the quantity and the quality of what they produce and the money income that they get? But also we want to show, is it better for the atmosphere and better for the waters, groundwaters, rivers, streams, and the ocean? We really need to kind of do the whole mass balance. So what we're finding is there's almost no place where people have looked at everything simultaneously. And so this is one project we're trying to do that. And there we're trying to link it to the concept I mentioned earlier of, of uh, CO2 losses. We're trying to figure out, well, what, how much carbon is really being stored in the system? And, um, 
what kind of reward people could get for that if there was a system that rewarded them. Right. So we can talk about carbon, just don't talk about climate. You know, in terms of the in terms of the conservative rancher farmer community, well, and and you know, look, this was very much my experience. You know, with with Gabe Brown and 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 sort of you know with other mid Midwest um, land managers, they don't want to talk about climate because uh, it, you know it's not just politically uh, savvy to do so. But you well, can the, talk. But you can talk about carbon. You can talk about soil carbon. They don't want to talk about organic. <laughs> organic is an absolute no term. They're using the term regenerative agriculture yeah. now. But in fact, most yeah. farmers won't listen to anything organic because they're so into the industrial chemical agricultural model. Um, but, but that's an immediate right. no-go with them. Right, okay. Obviously, there's a, there are political challenges ahead of us. Um, uh, uh, getting back to science, um, you know, um, we've been focusing on sort of pasture land restoration and, and using grazing, and uh, there were a couple of seminal papers. Uh, Richard Teague in 2016 mm -hmm. um, had a paper with Raton Wall as a third author mm -hmm. um, where they were showing one ton per acre per year uh, drawdown via the... Uh, adaptive multi-paddock grazing, he mm -hmm. called it, but uh, everyone knows, wink, wink, it's holistic management. And um, and that was in East Texas, a fairly dry area. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Megan MacMuller, uh in Georgia showed three tons mm -hmm. per acre per year mm -hmm. in a in a in a in a more temperate environment. Mm -hmm. it, could you just? We haven't touched it yet. I know we're kind of running out of time, but just really briefly talk a little bit about about grazing as a as a uh, as a soil restoration approach in, in in natural pasture systems. Well, every ecosystem could be managed regeneratively. Pastures are important because they occupy such a large part of land surface. They don't have very high biomass compared to forests, but they're recycling carbon at a very fast rate. And it's you know thirty or forty percent of the Earth's surface is, is managed in pastures close to that in some sort of way. So it's a big part of the picture. We have to regenerate every ecosystem, not just any one of them. So that's very important. So pastures are are very important, and so, so is regenerative agriculture. The thing what we see with both pastures and agriculture is that there's one in a thousand who's managing their land in a way that's going to make it more productive in the future, that's increasing the biomass that they have now, and their economic returns in the short term. But the thing is, for everyone doing the right thing, there's thousands, maybe millions of people who are just running their ecosystem down burning off their carbon, draining the land, reducing the water, natural water cooling cycles. That all goes together. Putting carbon in the soil, in my point of view, is the first thing, because when we increase the biomass, we're going to increase the water cycle and the heat cycle. So that, that's really crucial. They're, they're all interrelated. I, I think putting carbon in the soil is the most important, frankly, and then planting the right kinds of plants. Okay, excellent. Um, so I think we need to wrap up soon. Uh, is there couple other questions that have well, come there in. there was a comment about something that came out in the news today. CBS News talks to Midwest farmers about this growing season and finds that they're worried about the weather but extremely hesitant to talk about climate change. Okay, we we already sort of covered yeah. covered that topic. There are lots of great questions and we wish we had the time to uh, look and, at them all. And, and anything that, else that's sort of a science-oriented yeah. question? Uh, it's interesting to see the policy coming in here. Mm -hmm. Um, this is something. How about the one from um, from Grace? Uh, several studies, most notably Rodale Institute, have done some studies on soil carbon. 
comparing organic and conventional systems. Okay, she's just offering some Yeah, well, they've done some great stuff, and I mean, they argue that's a solution. I think the difficulty we're finding is that there are many solutions, all of which need to be applied, and a lot of them spend their time saying that their solution is enough all by itself. That's not the case. We just need all of them. There's okay. one question Quick by question. Sherrod Connor. The question is sulfur dioxide emissions from transportation. I just lost it. Okay, how about um, the one from Glenn Mitchell? We have a simple view on this. We have an aerobic food dehydrate, dehydrator, which strips the water out of food waste in 24 hours. 50% is photosynthesized carbon. Companies wanting to offset by a machine. People eat at carbon neutral restaurants and 2.5% of their bill goes uh, to collecting and processing the food waste. The output is high nitrogen, which gets combined with carbon and nitrogen to produce good aerobic compost. Regenerative farmers get the compost and all we do is measure their soil carbon levels. Once the, once the standard is set, we hope to start paying farmers to draw down from Glenn Mitchell. So it sounds like that's a program they already have in effect. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, I, as you know, I mean, huge amounts of food is wasted. I mean, not just at the restaurant level, huge amounts of food rots in the fields or rots on the way to market or it's uneconomic. So yes, I mean, that, all of that stuff should not be wasted and uh, we need to develop mechanisms to do that. Okay, uh, Glenn, uh, uh, definitely post more about this in the Soil for Climate group. That sounds pretty interesting, what, you, what you're doing. Um, uh, anything else burning? Otherwise, I think we should probably wrap up now. Any other burning questions out there? Like a million of them. <laughs> um, well, a lot of these things are sort of comments or, or links to other studies yes, and stuff, well, which is yeah. great. So, friends... Um, Okay, let, let's end with Daniel Wall's quick question. Okay, so there's a question here from Daniel Wall. Go ahead, Tom, why don't you even read it? Okay, he says, Tom, do you feel we still have a, a, a I think it's just changed, I think it needs chance to reverse global warming now that so many runaway triggers are kicking off. Wildfires in the Arctic, deep oceans releasing carbon, permafrost melt, producing vast amounts of nitrous oxide, et cetera. There's no question it's getting catastrophic. We're on the road to runaway climate change if we don't reverse it. And the sooner we do, the cheaper it will be. I mean, I think that the... Technologies are there if we had the will and we put our funding to where it was effective. And if we don't do it damn soon, it'll, it will eventually be too late or, or unaffordable. I can't really tell you that this one point where it gets there, it just gets incrementally worse and worse and worse as, as time goes by. We really can't afford to wait any longer. Okay, Daniel, uh, thanks for that question. Sorry for the rather <laughs> depressing answer. Um, I, we will put the list of books. Tom, why don't you, as as a sign off, just very quickly hold each book in front of the okay. in front of the camera, and then and then we'll put the list of them uh, after and just say the right. title. Okay. So this is geotherapy, innovative methods of soil fertility restoration, carbon sequestration, and reversing CO two increase. Um, and that book was published by CRC Press in 2014. Its companion volume was actually came out two years earlier, and this is Innovative Methods of Marine Ecosystem Restoration. Um, and that, that's actually, this is a 300-page book. This is a 600-page book, so I said 300 pages, it's one's 300. So light reading. Yes, um, and um, then um, other books I really recommend is John Todd's book, which just came out this year, um, and it's Healing Earth, and it calls this Journey of Innovation and Environmental Stewardship. It's a great book, and it's 
that's in plain, it's not in technical language, I think everyone can understand that. And it's published by North Atlantic Books in Berkeley. I really strongly recommend it. Um, this book also was published this year, Burn, Using Fire to Cool the Earth, by Albert Bates and Kathleen Draper. And uh, this book here is about clever uses of biochar. Um, I think there's a lot of innovative proposals in there. And finally, this book here, which I have not read, it just arrived in my mail yesterday, but it's by Elko Rowling, The Climate Question, Natural Cycles, Human Impact, Future Outlook. And this is this one, sorry, I didn't get the publisher. This is Oxford University Press, Burners by Chelsea Green. And uh, this book here is, I think, also 2019. And I will, yes, it is Oxford University Press. And this, this is a scientist who really understands global carbon cycles in the long run, who I have enormous respect for. I'm sure this is a very insightful book. And I, I will post a review of it as soon as I get a chance to read it carefully. And I'll sort the climate will hold on that, I hope. I hope you read uh, my review of this book. Absolutely. Yes, okay. <laughs> you name it, we'll do it. Yes. <laughs> okay, Tom, let's wrap up. It, it's been a real joy. Yeah, thank uh, you for thank spending you. Yeah. over an hour with us yes. now, okay. uh, almost an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for, for tuning in. Please feel free to share this. We're about to end, and then we will actually, you know, type up the name of, of each of those books that he just recommended and give the URL to that. And I'm sorry we couldn't have dialogue with each and every one of you because there's a lot of people with interest in yeah. it. But yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone. Okay. Bye-bye.